Hey, good morning. Happy Monday. Welcome to this week's episode of Lost Origins. This week it's, uh, it's just Andrew cruising solo, and uh, we're really excited to jump in this week's episode with our special guest, Tom Carey. But before we jump into that, uh, as always, we have to tip the proverbial hat to the homies over at Inner Traditions and Baron Company. I know that we've been beating this drum something fierce from day one, but for real, if you guys have not checked out that website, it is well worth the visit and the, and the session. It's uh, innertraditions.com. They have tons of resources for you guys. doesn't matter if you're into wellness, if you're into esoteric knowledge, you're into ancient mysteries, everything in between. Their library and catalog is deep as hell, and it's going to give you everything you need to jump down a rabbit hole for the rest of the week so jump over there and uh just peruse that library pick up something let them know that your friends from lost origins sent you and all be well in the world so this week is going to be one hell of a conversation with our new friend tom carey tom carey is one hell of a guy and he obtained his phd in anthropology from the university of toronto he's also an air force veteran who's held the top secret crypto clearance um, he has been a Mutual UFO Network or MUFON State Section Director for the Southeastern Pennsylvania chapter uh, from 1986 to 2001. And uh, him and his partner in crime, Donald Schmidt, who unfortunately is not going to be on the call, uh, we're going to get him at a later date, have written droves of books that focus on all things extraterrestrials, UFO, uh, Wright-Patterson, Roswell, and everything in between. Um, some of the books that these two have authored include UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, uh, The Witness to Roswell, The Children of Roswell, The Roswell Incident, starting to see a theme there. Um, and today we are going to be ripping through a ton of stuff with Tom. Specifically, we're going to be discussing their most recent book, UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, but we're also going to be talking about the events that began at Roswell and Area 51, which everybody's pretty familiar with, um, but how it ended at Wright-Patterson, which is an ultra-top-secret Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. And so this was a talking point that I really did not know too much about heading into this conversation. Um, it's pretty fascinating, though, that, you know, when we think of uh, extraterrestrial encounters, you think of UFO incidents, uh, everybody's brain goes to Roswell, New Mexico, Area 51. Uh, very few of us, I feel, you know, think Ohio. And so Tom really, really shed some interesting light on uh, the situation, what's happening here, the cover up conspiracies and everything in between. And he's going to take us down one ridiculous rabbit hole that ends at Hangar 18, which is something that I think everybody is going to really enjoy. So uh, we're just going to queue up this Skype call and do the thing. Here we go. All right, Tom Carey, welcome to this week's episode of Lost Origins. We are very, very excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you for carving time for us today. It's my distinct pleasure, Andrew. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, this will be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, what I'd like to do is just kind of set the stage for today's episode. Um, we always like to make sure that first-time guests on Lost Origins have the opportunity to hit us with their backstory, the 35,000-foot view, history lesson, whatever you want to call it. You have some pretty, pretty gnarly accolades here and background, and I, I would just like for you to walk our listeners through who is Tom Carey, right? What does the <laughs> Daily Delta look like? What got you to this moment? Just kind of give us that backstory, Tom. Well, uh I uh, was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
and uh, graduated from uh, Temple University, the Fox School of Business. And I uh, joined the, the I, I was uh, a, a baseball player, football player, basketball player, and got a athletic scholarship to Temple University in Philadelphia, played mostly baseball. And I uh, had a few uh, offers from major league teams back then and uh, turned them all down to uh, further my education. And I uh, joined the Air Force, uh, got a top secret clearance, uh, top secret crypto clearance. Super cool. And uh, became uh, in the Air Force, I became interested in uh, anthropology. Uh, physical anthropology to be more distinct and uh, got a master's degree while I was stationed at McClellan Air Force Base in Sacramento, California, got a master's in anthropology, followed it as far as I can with uh, a uh, spent four next four years in Toronto at the University of Toronto going for a doctorate, which I did not receive. I guess uh, several factors uh, factored in there. I was a big hockey fan, and as you know, Toronto's the cradle of hockey. <laughs> Distraction <laughs> capital for you right there, right? <laughs> and we, we used to get four games a week on TV. We got the, the, the Maple Leaf games, the Buffalo Sabres games, and the Montreal Canadiens. That's how they pronounce it up there. Sure. The Montreal Canadiens game. Uh, so we had an average of four games a week. I watched too much television. But, Andrew, I think that was all a cover for it. At, at some point, I became over, oh, I just had this feel, this fear of failure. I was overcome by a fear of failure uh, for getting my doctorate. I don't know why, but I, I just didn't. Uh, I, I completed my coursework. And I'm a field type person. I like field work, and I I didn't have any field work. My my advisor there had a uh, uh, the uh, cadaver of an orangutan orangutan in uh, her laboratory, and I'm just not a dissection you know a dissection type person. So yeah, sure. That, that didn't work out for me, uh, but. Uh, like, like I said, I do, I do like getting out in the field, and I didn't have it there, but I was overcome by indecision and fear of failure, so um, I was married. I got married in Sacramento when I was there in the Air Force, and uh, my wife of 51 years is still with me. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have two children, a son and a daughter. And uh, they're grown, of course. Uh, son lives in Florida. Daughter lives in upstate New York. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. I became interested in UFOs uh, as a teenager and read a few books, uh, which very very interesting. But when the book called The Roswell Incident came out in 1980, I was blown away. I was sure. blown away it, uh, because we're not talking about lights in the sky. I, w- I was a MUFON state section director for a number of years, and most of those cases that I handled were, uh, gee, I saw this. 
I saw this light in the sky. It went this way and that way. And, oh, boy, tell me more, you know. <laughs> uh, got, got tired of that. And uh, having a background in anthropology and archaeology, in 1991, uh, I became aware of these two fellows at the, the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, uh, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt were reopening the, the Roswell matter because between the time of the first publication of the book, 1980, and by 1990s, uh, that was it. There was nothing in it. There was nothing more. But they were reopening the case, and I asked them what they had, what they had been doing about trying to find the group of archaeologists who allegedly stumbled upon the downed craft and bodies. And they said that they had basically done nothing. And since these, these uh, archaeologists were from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I said, well, look, I have a degree in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. It's just a little short train ride from Huntington Valley to Center City, Philadelphia. Let me have a crack at trying to, to find those uh, anthropologists from the University of Pennsylvania. So that's how I became active in the investigation. That sure. was 1991. I took my first trip uh, with uh, Randall and Schmidt to Roswell in 1993. And uh, in 1990, and if you're, you know much about the case, uh, the, the golden year for the, the case was 1997, which was the 50th anniversary of it, uh, of the crash. And there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage on CNN and NBC and what have you of, of the 50th anniversary uh, goings-on down in Roswell. And after that, most of the people that were involved in the case left the field. And uh, so... Uh, being a QFOS member, QFOS, uh, uh, as Don Schmidt was, I hooked up with Don in 1998 to continue a proactive investigation of the case because most of the other, uh, people involved, you know, Stan Friedman, uh, Don Berliner, uh, even Kevin Randall himself, uh, went on to other things. Sure. But I wanted to, as Don did, uh, continue a proactive research of the case because we felt there was more to be learned. And uh, Don and I took our first trip together as a team down to Roswell in the, the May, May of 1998. And uh, we've been a team ever since. I think that's like tw 21 years or something like that. And we've written... I have to add them up. I think we've written, we've co-authored six or seven books on the subject. Right, right. Uh, the current one is called UFO Secrets uh, Inside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. That came out in June. We have another book coming out in uh, between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas of this year. It's a coffee table picture type book, which covers the entire case. 
It's called Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. Oh, wow. And that will be out uh, sometime between Thanksgiving of this year and uh, December. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Christmas. Just in time for Christmas. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I, I personally, I like that book. Uh, it, it took me a while to put it together. And it's, it's a picture with captions and a narrative of the entire timeline as we see it of the Roswell case. Mm-hmm. So you can look for that. Uh, so, you know, sometime uh, between those uh, parameters. Uh, we have another book, our last, uh, what we believe will be our last Roswell book. It's already at the, it's already at the publishers. Uh, it's called uh, Roswell, The Ultimate Cold Case File Closed. Roswell Closed. Mm. And it's our final book because everybody's dead. uh, we uh we feel that we moved the case from the 50 yard line down to the one yard line and the only reason we haven't uh, pushed it across the goal although we are satisfied with uh, that we have the right story and the right people involved the the only thing we're missing uh, drew is a piece of physical evidence that's incontrovertible there have been a few Claims over the years, like uh, oh, we got this piece, we got that piece. The the uh, what do they call them? The little uh, little atoms or something. The uh, are different than uh, what would be found on Earth, but no- nothing that has been agreed upon. So that's that's what we're missing, and that's why we're sort of at the goal line, uh, uh, you know, trying to get a piece of uh, incontrovertible physical evidence. Yeah, so, for sure. That book will be out either uh, because, like I said, we finished it. It's at the uh, publishers. It'll be out uh, at the latest in June of next year. Okay. Case closed. Got it. And I think that's a great jumping off point, uh, I mean, for for my next question for you. I mean, first of all, thank you for for walking us through that chronology there that's that's super thorough, and it's good to have the context. Um, I mean, you're definitely a force to be reckoned with within the ufology arena. Uh, I mean, you're your partner in crime, Donald, as well, right? And so what I'd like to do, you talked about physical evidence, and I think that we should definitely start with some of the archaeological digs that you guys did at the actual Roswell crash and debris field, right? And I believe you guys yes. did three digs. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I've lost count. We've had a number of smaller digs. The biggest dig, uh, Drew, that we did was in 2002, okay. uh, sponsored by the Sci-Fi Channel. Very cool. Yes, and they paid for everything. And uh, it was... Uh, overseen and conducted by the uh, University of New Mexico's Office of Contract Archaeology. We, we made the proposal of what we wanted to do, where we wanted to dig, and uh, they accepted. And, uh, and so they, they actually uh, conducted the dig just like any other dig that they did. Mm-hmm. Only this, this one, we were looking for physical evidence from a, an alleged... Uh, crash of a UFO in 1947. Now, we've identified three sites associated with the Roswell crash, so-called the Breefield site, which you just mentioned, which is the 
the largest of the three sites, and it's closer to the town of Corona, New Mexico, than it is to Roswell. And uh, what happened was the uh, on the evening of July second, nineteen forty-seven. I had to think there for a second. Uh, July second, nineteen forty-seven. Late in the evening, maybe after eleven o'clock, there was an explosion. We get this from eyewitnesses who remember hearing a muffled explosion uh, during a thunderstorm uh 33 miles uh, south of uh the town of corona new mexico it exploded and rained down all this debris in small pieces and it also uh, we believe that there were five alien occupants on board two of them were thrown out by the explosion hmm. and came to rest at a site two and a half miles east southeast of the debris field site so we believe that's called we call that the deep proctor body site because it was d proctor who uh, was a boy of seven years old at the time of the crash and uh, he discovered the the wreckage on the debris field site with uh, Mac Brazel the following morning. He was with Mac, and it was D. Proctor in 1994 who told finally told his mother about this site where he said that Mac found quote unquote something else, and uh, we believe that that something else. Uh, was two bodies and uh, there were a total of five altogether, five bodies and the third site after the ship exploded in the air ejecting two of its occupants the inner cabin or some sort of escape pod uh, or inner cabin that withstood the explosion continued on for another 30 to 35 miles before it uh, landed, came to rest uh, about uh, 32 miles north, directly north of Roswell. So, so those it, it 32 miles, I mean, the, it's still airborne at that point. It hasn't like completely crashed and it's not like like sliding across the, the, the earth for 30 miles. Am I, I want to make sure I'm tracking you correctly. Yeah, it, uh, you got, you, you've got the debris field site and then you've got the two and a half miles east-southeast, the deep proctor site. And then it continues on for another 30 to 35 miles uh, before it touches down. And we believe, we call that the impact site. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we call that the impact site. When uh, there were three occupants uh, found there besides the inner cabin or the uh, tear-shaped uh, you know, uh, tear uh, escape pod, something like that. Uh, there were three occupants, two of whom were dead, and one was still alive when the military arrived and when the, you know, some of the civilians actually arrived before the military. And they saw this uh, one uh, alien uh, uh, you know, with a large head, three and a half feet tall, with a large head, walking around. And uh, uh, also two, two of the... Uh, Two of them were killed. So that gives a total of five, two at the two at the deep proctor site, three at the impact site. And uh, so we had a, 
that just gives you the background on the sites we had. The one that had the most wreckage was the uh, debris field site, and that's where we did our archaeological dig in 2002 with the University of New Mexico because we felt the, you know, that had the most wreckage. We had the best chance of finding a piece there. And unfortunately, we didn't find any any incontrovertible piece of physical evidence. The military had uh, scoured, had vacuumed the site is a better term. They had vacuumed the site and so many years had intervened and uh, there's it's windy out there, a lot of wind and the wreckage was feather light. So anything that remained that the military didn't get was blown hither and yon and it would be a uh, needle in a haystack type find if you ever found the piece there. But we did, we followed uh, normal archaeological procedure in uh, digging the site. And uh, what we did find was uh, uh, on the last day of the excavation, uh, we brought in the archaeologist's favorite tool, the backhoe. All right. And uh, we we had stories of uh, back in, from 1947 that said there was a gouge, a large gouge created when the ship skimmed, uh, might have skimmed the the ground before exploding. And it was apparently like 500 feet long, and uh, we knew the we knew the general trajectory of that gouge. So we had this backhoe do a scooper, you know, scoop right at a right angle, uh, like forming a T right across where we thought the gouge was. And there we saw, we could tell that the earth had been dis disturbed in a V in a V shape, maybe about uh, three feet deep at the, at the apex of the, uh, V and to uh, a couple feet at the top. So there was a V that we could see of, uh, what we were in archaeology we call aeolian or windborne deposits that had filled in this v sure and so and it was right where the people said the gouge was so to us that was physical proof of the gouge or or where the ship had skimmed the ground uh, before exploding so that's the best thing we found we didn't find any memory metal or any metal at all when we didn't find any hubcaps or steering wheels or, or uh, uh, fog lights or anything like that. Sure, we, sure. Uh, so that's what we did. That was, that was the big dig. There have been smaller ones scattered about over the years. And uh, we have a friend of ours named Frank Kimbler who lives in Roswell. He's a, uh, he's a geologist that, uh, teaches uh, geology at the New Mexico Military Institute and he goes out on his own with a metal detector and whatever else geologists use and has picked up, has found little pieces of aluminum type material and uh, he's had some of them analyzed which apparently display, according to Frank a uh, isotope structure different from uh anything on earth so uh, interesting 
he, so he thinks that you know those are little pieces of the ship, and they, and they are small. Uh, to us, it looks like uh, aluminum or just foil from a say a pack of cigarettes or a Hershey bar or something like that. So we do have a little uh, difference of opinion as to what those little pieces represent. But uh, Frank, you know, Frank has uh, been on television and what have you. And, uh, uh, you know, they just, to, to us, they just like, look like little pieces of aluminum. And the description we got from the witnesses who were at the Kirk sites, uh, they don't describe pieces that small. They describe all of the wreckage being like palms you know like the palm of your hand yeah, side sure. so we don't we don't have any descriptions of tiny little pieces so there is a little difference of opinion as to what those things represent that frank has found but uh you know he's he he goes out periodically so you never know so uh those are th those are the physical steps we have taken we believe that some of the ranchers, uh, the Corona ranchers and ranchers outside of Roswell who got to the site first, normally, you know, you know, they would pick up, uh, they, the normal people would pick up samples, right. And put them in their pockets. Sure. So we believe that that had, has happened, but so far, none of them have come forward. We've heard rumors that the, uh, that the Brazels, uh, who uh, Mac Brazel was the foreman of that of that ranch, uh, the Breefield site. He was the foreman. It was a sheep ranch. Uh, we've heard rumors over the years that uh, there were pieces in the family, the Brazel family, that they kept, but uh, uh, they tell us no. But uh, we have other others who say, well, they talked to so and so uh, Brazel and. He said they had pieces, so hmm. you know we we just have not been able to break through on on that uh, that ground. Wow, that's intense. We do have to take just a quick break, but when we jump back in, let's definitely continue down this rabbit hole. So more from Tom Carey after the break. Welcome back to this week's episode of Lost Origins. This week, uh, myself and Tom Carey are discussing all things Roswell, Area 51, Wright-Patterson, Hangar 18, all things extraterrestrials. So, before the break, we were really starting to rip into Area 51, and uh, let's just jump right back in. Let's talk a little bit about Area 51 then, because I think that's like the, the most common conception is that after the Roswell crash, a lot of right. the, the, the wreckage, uh, the debris, um, the bodies, what, you know, all the things went back to Area 51. And that's, you know, what has basically created this this phenomena around that that enigmatic site down in New Mexico uh, in so far as the huge Facebook event that turned out to be, you know, a giant like just joke through and through uh, that went down recently. But but either way, like most people associate Area 51 with the Roswell crash. In your most recent book, you guys actually talk about how like that site is, I don't want to say a decoy, but for the lack of a better term, it's like 
distracting people from where the evidence was actually moved, and that was up to right. Wright Patterson up in Dayton, Ohio. And so what I'm what I'm hoping you can yeah. do is just kind of explain, you know, yep. your work, your research around the chronology of Area 51, but then also like what motivated the the movement of all of this uh, physical evidence up to Wright Patterson. You actually have it backwards, Drew. Um, Catch me up, uh, then. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, when I, you know, whenever I give a talk, I say, uh, "How many people have ever heard of Area Fifty One?" And all their hands go up, right? Then I say, uh, "How many people have ever heard of uh, Hangar 18? And about half of the hands go down. But sure. Then I say, how many of you have ever heard of Wright Patterson? And none of the hands remain. They're all the hands go down. But what happened was that uh, the Roswell wreckage and the bodies, they did not go to Area 51 in Nevada. They went to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, or at that time was called Wright Field. Really? In Dayton, Ohio. That's where all that stuff went. And why is that? Well, that's because uh, during World War II, uh, Wright Field and uh, Patterson Field uh, uh, became uh, militarized. Uh, they were started by the Wright brothers back in the early part of the last century. But the uh, military took it over most of it in World War One, and by not, uh, and by World War Two, they they had really defined roles. And at Wright Field, they had this hangar. It was called Hangar Twenty Three, where all captured uh, German and and uh, Japanese aircraft were taken to to uh, reverse engineer them, uh, basically tear them apart to find out what made them work and to define countermeasures and create new aircraft, fighter planes, and what have you that would defeat them in battle. So they already had this uh, division called the Foreign Technology Division, which back then meant uh, people we were at war with. And uh, they had a, a facility that actually was in the business of back engineering and tearing things down and analyzing, trying finding out what made them tick. So when the Roswell crash happened, this was really foreign technology, right? Sure. So, so uh, it was the natural place to go. So that's where they took it to uh, Hangar 23. And the bodies also, uh, right Brightfield had an advanced aeromedical squadron, uh, aeromedical facility, uh, all the latest uh, medical things, gadgets, and what have you, and that's where the bodies went. So uh, if there were other crashes or other artifacts that came into the uh, our possession, that's that's where they went, right Right Field, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. Okay. So what ha what happened was that uh, during the mid-50s, uh, Lockheed Aircraft Corporation in California, uh, Wright-Patterson was becoming too, you know, the city had grown up around the, the base, and it was becoming too populated. And uh, the testing of aircraft, you know, once in a while you have a crash. So they said, okay, we can't do it. We 
we can't test our aircraft here anymore. Number one, it's too busy, too easy to get spies in and out. And if we ever have a crash, you, you run the risk of crashing into a neighborhood or downtown uh, Dayton, Ohio. So with the aid of Lockheed Aircraft, they found this place in Nevada near Groom Lake, which was which was very uh, secluded desert area. It was a dry lake bed and uh, very remote, uh, good for testing aircraft. So uh, beginning in 1954-55, Area 51, which was simply a, a plot on the map. It had no uh, cosmic significance. It was strictly a, a, a quadrant on the on the Nevada map, the map of Nevada, and so that's where they built their this facility to train uh, to develop spy planes. That was the original concept: the U uh, two spy plane and the SR seventy one spy planes were developed at Area fifty one. That's why Area fifty one came into existence uh, northwest of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. So so uh, nothing to do with uh, UFOs. But what happened was, uh, oh, and uh, we have word from uh, people who worked at uh, foreign technology at Wright-Patterson that the, that the UFO-type wreckage all went to, they shipped it to Area 51 in Nevada, Somewhere in the 1982 to 83 time frame, because uh, 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 Wright Patterson was becoming too well known uh, for a reason which I'll get to. So it was shipped. All that stuff went to uh, Area 51 in Nevada in the early 60s, which which nobody really knew. And uh, so what happens is uh, 1989, this fellow named Robert Lazar. Who, who claimed to have worked at Area 51 said that his job was working on captured, uh, captured or downed uh, alien uh, spaceships, flying saucers. He said that was his job. He said they had eight hangars built into the side of the wall in an area uh, in uh, called S4, very secret area of Area 51. He worked in those hangars, and they had uh, a spacecraft from another another world in in there mm. uh, and so that was robert lazar that's how area 51 became known because up until that point um the uh, say the u2 there was a big international incident in uh, 1960 of uh, we had a u2 crash over the Soviet Union and the U-2 was designed to overfly the Soviet Union at an altitude that uh, uh, that the Soviet uh, fighter planes and uh, rockets couldn't reach. Well, by 1960, they they downed the U-2 over uh, uh, that was flown by Francis Gary Powers over Russia. And uh, the U-2 became famous, but it was never mentioned where, where the thing was developed, which was a Area 51. And the U.S. government never really admitted to an Area 51 until uh, just, be just before our book on, called Inside the Real Area 51 
came out in 2013, all of a sudden the CIA admitted that there was a facility called Area 51 in Nevada. Up until that point, they never would admit it. Uh, Bill Clinton in 1996 admitted that there was a facility there, but he never called, he never uh, used the name Area 51. He just said there was a facility there because it was being sued by a couple former employees there who were claiming to have gotten uh, 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 terminal diseases because one of the things they did there was they <clears throat> they burned uh, hazardous material in open air pits there hmm. and uh, they became sick and uh, some died and a suit was filed against the US government uh, you know for wrongful deaths and uh, uh, so uh, Bill Clinton did admit to a facility there but he never named it and it wasn't until our book came out uh, in 2013 that they finally admitted that there was an a facility called area 51 there so that's how it became associated with ufos it was robert lazar had had done it so uh robert lazar i don't know if you've ever seen him he presents well he's very glib uh i think he was too young to have all the uh, doctor's degrees that he claimed to have had and uh a friend of mine who uh, lived in Boston uh, near MIT, which was one of the uh, uh, schools that uh, Lazar said he had a doctorate from, interviewed him. And uh, he asked Lazar a question that, oh, okay, there's a, a historical site right next to MIT that every any student who ever attended there would know what, what what is that site and Lazar didn't know so uh, on that basis my associate uh, said that this guy's just not telling the truth at least about his degrees so sure so that that's how Area 51 became uh, known with uh, UFOs but people did not not many knew about Wright Patterson. Yeah, 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 yeah. They 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 have heard of this uh, ha uh, uh, hangar eighteen, but that but they didn't really associate that with uh, any known base. But uh, that came about uh, in nineteen ninety four as I was uh, getting ready to go to the University of Toronto. This fellow in Florida named uh, Professor Robert Spencer Carr. And he was no professor at all. He was just a UFO buff. Uh, started talking about friends that he knew who, who had retired. Uh, you know, Florida, big uh, retirement community, right? Sure. So uh, he had heard from uh, military retirees who had uh, worked at uh, Wright Patterson about this Hangar 18 there, where all this the the. Uh, alien artifacts were stored and uh he says it's uh hangar 18 blah 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 and uh at wright patterson so that's how wright patterson got involved was because of the retirees in florida telling this one guy and i remember hearing this guy on the radio as uh uh i you know my thoughts were getting getting ready to go to toronto and uh this story was big, big. It was a, it was Robert Spencer Carr's 15 minutes of fame, 
but uh, he was right about that. That the uh, he said there were bodies stored there, and that there was wreckage. Blah 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 blah, and uh, so that was. Uh, but most people uh, didn't remember the the uh, Wright Patterson part of it, and. There is, and to be honest with you, there is no Hangar 18. If you go, if you go to uh, uh, Wright, Wright Patterson today, and and as many people do, and they say, "Where's Hangar 18?" They say, "Well, there is no Hangar 18. Never was one." Right. And they're right. And and the re and the, the problem is that Hangar 18 is really the Hangar 23 that I was talking about. Okay. And the reason, and the reason they called the Hangar 18 was because. You, you need a schematic map, uh, and it all became clear to me when I was able to get a map uh, with a schematic of all the buildings on hang on the uh, right right field, right Patterson. There's something called the Building 18 Complex. It's, it consists of nine buildings, Building 18A through 18G or F or something like that. But there's only one hangar. In that complex, it's Hangar 23. Got so it. Pe- so people, out of convenience, just started re- referring to it as Hangar 18 because it's in the Building 18 complex, the only hangar there. And it's the one that does all of the reverse engineering that took place. So that's the Hangar 18 of lore. But in uh, in uh, taxonomy terms, it, it, its real designation is Hangar 23. But it's the Hangar 18 of lore, so that's how it got all mixed up. And so, what's the current status of Hangar 18 based on your your research and your work, Tom? I mean, is is it still like an active facility? Is there are there still uh, reverse engineering no, I mean, efforts it, taking place? Uh, yeah, they they just do testing of engines and stuff like that. There, there's 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 no more there's no more UFO stuff on the base because it, the the base became too known for that, and people new you know visitors to the base they all wanted to know where hangar 18 was and where the aliens were kept sure <laughs> so, uh, sure so we have a whole chapter in uh, in our in the book that just came out uh, about uh, ufo secrets at at uh, Wright patterson we have a whole chapter on hangar 18 it's how it all came about and and we also have a whole chapter on the the blue room uh, the blue room is a is nomenclature for uh, uh, the most secret room on any base. Now today, the most secret room on any Air Force base is the room that has all the computers in it and the radar and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So that's what the blue room is today. But back then, the blue room because it's before all the computers came in and all that stuff the, it was where all the secret stuff was and the most secret stuff was the uh, alien artifacts and uh, so Barry Goldwater a senator from Arizona back in 1963 in addition to being a, a senator and the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee was also a two-star Air Force general, a major general in the Air Force Reserve. So he he wore two hats. He was a good friend of the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force back then, uh, Curtis Bomber LeMay, who uh, from World War II fame rose to be the Air Force chief of staff in the 1960s. So Goldwater finds himself at uh, Wright, Wright Patterson 
uh, on a, you know, on a tour, you know, as the chairman of the Ar- Senate Armed Services Committee. And he says, oh, my God. He was also a UFO buff, by the way. Okay. And uh, so he's at Wright, Wright Patterson. He says, oh, my goodness. Uh, I know there's a room they call the Blue Room here. And uh, that's supposed to be where all that wreckage is and the bodies and all that. So he says, I'm. So he calls up his friend. They were good friends, uh, Curtis LeMay. He calls up Curtis LeMay in Washington. He says, General, uh, I'm here at Wright Patterson. Uh, I understand there's a room here where you keep all of that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, uh, foreign uh, uh, alien uh, artifacts and bodies and everything associated with UFOs. By that time, the term flying saucer had uh, uh, been taken over by the term UFOs. So where all that UFO stuff is, uh, might I go into that room? And he says it was the only time that LeMay ever got really mad at him. He says, no, you can't go in that room. Hell no. (laughs) I can't go in. I can't go in that room myself. And I don't believe that for a second. Uh, And, uh, don't ever ask me that question again, because if you do, I'll see that you're court-martialed. Well, thank God they were friends, right? Sure. So uh, Goldwater dropped. Uh, he never asked him again, but uh, but LeMay wouldn't let him in, and he got really, uh, really upset about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so that was the Blue Room. So we have a whole chapter on that in our, in our book. Very and, cool. Uh, There's another chapter yeah. in your book that I'd like to, to talk about, or at least a, a topic that's discussed in your book, and that's aliens on ice, right? And so when I was looking online uh, at, at just some of the, the synopsis and the alien, overview work. Alien what? The aliens on ice, right? So there was oh, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a snippet uh, from, from online that basically says, uh, it should be clear from these testimonials that in addition to physical crash wreckage, bodies from another world were brought to and stored at Wright-Patterson. Being with the Roswell crash in July of 1947, uh, the evidence suggests that the bodies were preserved in clear containers in a state of chirogenic suspension by some combination of low temperature and chirogenic gas or solution. Um, so can you just yes. share with us some of the testimonials uh, that, that you guys uh, speak to and then also maybe just like walk us through some of the credibility of these testimonials? I think that would be fascinating for, for our listeners. Well, uh, before they had cryogenic suspension, uh, hangar 23-18 is right across the alley from the the cold storage room, building 18F was a cold storage room. So how convenient, you know, uh, that you have this hangar 18 and the alien artifacts and then the bodies. And right across the street is what they what they called the ice house. It was the cold storage room. So the bodies were kept there for a couple of years. And we have testimonial from one fellow. And I can't give you names because I, uh, I got so many names uh, in my you know in my head. I, I couldn't give you the guy's name if unless I looked it up. But it, it's in the book because we name sure. we name names. Uh, we, we just don't say uh, someone or uh, an anonymous, so we name names. So we had one fellow, he said, you know, 
I, I worked close to, to this uh, building 18F, which was the cold storage room. He says, but you know, on hot summer days, and this is before air conditioning. Okay. He says, you know, in hot summer days, boy, we would, uh, a smell of like formaldehyde would waft down the, <laughs> would waft down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, uh, I always, I wondered why it would have formaldehyde coming from that uh, cold storage room because you know they did cold cold testing of engines they 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 like to call uh, test air aircraft engines uh, in uh, cold uh, conditions and that might be part of what that that building was for but he said well, i got i smelled this formaldehyde smell coming down the street from that 18 building 18f so that that's one guy so at some point uh, that the uh, use of these uh, 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 capsules with uh, with uh, a, a cryo, what we call cryogenic suspension. Uh, I don't know what gas they use in there, nitrogen. I don't know, but something that keeps them cold without having to use ice. And uh, we have testimonies from several people who found themselves. Uh, they were either led there for some reason. And they saw uh, would, uh, even workers that were working on something that had nothing to do with this, but they would see these capsules, a uh, number of capsules. And they said, wow, what, what are those things? You know, so they, they went over and looked at them and they could see these little bodies in there, about three and a half feet full, uh, tall with these large heads. Clearly, they were not human. We have testimonials from a number of people like that who were like uh, – uh, construction workers doing some work down there and uh, they were always told not to look at the at the capsules right don't look at anything just do your work but of course when they were left alone they would they would right. go over and look and uh, they all said they saw these little diminutive uh, uh, bodies with large heads some of them were in various states of dissection and uh, but at least one was not undissected was not dissected but the others were in various states of dissection so uh that that's that took over for the ice room the ice house was this cryogenic uh, suspension and we have a picture in the book now I'm, i might be getting my books mixed up but we have a picture of the back the back of hangar 23 and you can see these large tanks in the back, uh, very large tanks, which contain nitrogen or something like that, like that. Now, why would they have that at a hangar? Well, that's, that's what they use for cryogenic suspension. Hmm. And, uh, so we have that at the back of hangar 23 slash 18. And, uh, um, we, again, we name names and, uh, there's, uh, there's no doubt as to what, what was going on there. Wow. That's super intense. So I guess my, my like one of my last questions for you, because I feel like this is a, a loaded question as I'll get out, is <laughs> what, how does Project Blue Book fit into this narrative, right? And into your guys' work in general. I mean, if you can just walk us through some of the connections that you guys have been able to piece together around Project Blue Book and all of these components, I think that would be super yeah. fascinating for our audience. Well, uh, right after Roswell, they needed some uh some organization some department to, to control 
the analysis of the wreckage in the bodies and also to control access to it. Uh, because uh, e even if you have a top secret clearance, it doesn't clear you for everything. You, it's more or less designated. Like I have a top secret crypto clearance. That doesn't mean that I can walk into Wright Patterson and say, "All right, I have a top secret clearance. Where, where are the? Uh, where are you keeping the uh, UFO artifacts?" No, I have a top secret crypto, which it's limited to my cryptographic work. You know, sure and. Uh, so uh, they developed uh, a very loose uh, organization uh, called Project Sign, which uh, concluded uh, that the UFOs were real and blah, 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 that it, they weren't figments of people's imagination. Well, somebody didn't like that, so they, they disbanded Project Sign and created Project Grudge whose purpose was to debunk debunk flying saucers uh, stories but they, they kept happening and so in uh, they created this this uh, public relations outfit and that's what it was because the air force kept getting phone calls about uh, what are we, the flying saucers ufos and so they created project blue book uh, in 1952 to investigate and uh, hopefully draw conclusions as uh, reports came in. So what happened was that uh, uh, they're, they're, they tried to debunk every, every report that came in. And along the way, uh, one of the scientific consultants was a fellow named J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer at the University of uh, uh, at Ohio State. And uh, this one in 1966, he uh, basically, uh, there were these sightings in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Dexter, Michigan, that made national headlines. So the Project Blue Book sent him up there to, to uh, debunk the, what was going on. And so he gets off the plane. And because uh, some of the sightings were near a swampy area, uh, he gets off the plane and all the, the reporters, they rush up to him and they say, uh, Professor, uh, what, what's going on? What, what are the, and he says, well, you know, in marshy areas, there's this gas called swamp gas. Uh, and it, uh, when, when you get swamp gas, sometime, sometimes it lights up and creates like a little fireball. Swamp gas. So they all rush to the phone. Alan Hynek says the Ann Arbor sightings that the Dexter Michigan sightings are there's it's swamp gas well he never lived that down and he became known as old swampy and, uh, <laughs> and uh, blue book the, the the explanation was just unacceptable to 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 anybody with a thinking mind you know swamp gas and this is it so the Air Force threw up their hands in 1966 right after that. And they said, We're, we got to get out of this business. So they threw it to the University of Colorado to conduct a three-year study of UFO cases, which they did. So in 1969, they came out with a report, which didn't debunk UFOs, but it just said they're, they're not a threat to national security. 
and but they saw no further no scientific value that could be gained by continuing to investigate these reports which 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 is untrue of course but the air force used that uh, to close down project blue book in 1969 so Technically, they were out of the U.S. Biz- UFO business in 1969, but did that mean that UFO sightings stopped? Uh, un- uh, no, it, it, people kept having sightings, etc., etc., etc. And uh, you call up a U- you call up a base. They say, "Well, we're not in- we're not in the UFO business anymore. Call your local police." So that's how they got out of the UFO business was the they, mm-hmm. they formed they formed it out to the university of colorado the um what's that what was that i can't remember the fellow's name uh oh but he issued a report that uh, and the thing was if you read his report there are cases in there that still remain unknown but they just said that said they were not a threat to national security and that uh, there was no scientific value that they could see that would be gained by continuing to uh, investigate them. So the Air Force used that report to shut it down. Interesting. And, uh, that's what they did. That's fascinating. Super, super, super fascinating. So listen, I know that we, uh, we, we're we almost at time here. I want to give you the opportunity to share us share with the audience You know what you guys have coming down the pike. I know you'd already mentioned the two books that are coming out uh, within the next year, one between November and December, and then one, I believe, next June. Um, but what else yep. are you guys working on? I mean, how can people follow your guys' <laughs> work online? Do you guys, what's the website address? Just kind of do the, yeah. the self-promo yeah. thing for us. Yes, uh, uh, in addition to the books, uh, we have uh, a website. It's called www.roswellinvestigator.com. That's all one word, www.roswellinvestigator.com. And uh, we we have another field trip planned. Uh, one, of the, one of the early legends of this case was that there was this fellow named... Uh, um, his last name was Richards. I, I forget Dan Richards and he lived, uh, near Corona, but he had this secret cave where he would, uh, he would take things uh, a lot, you know, like something from the military, like a rifle or a, we know he t- took a machine gun somehow and he would store things in his secret cave. Well, living near the site of the, the crash, uh, Dan, got to the crash site and took uh, wreckage and he stored it in his uh, secret cave. We've never been able to find that cave, but now we have two relatives of Dan Richards. Richards died in 1965. He crashed his pickup truck. So Mm -hmm. So he was unavailable to us. We visited the, the Richards Ranch a few years ago, and they were uh, very tight-lipped and claimed they didn't know where the, uh, you know, the this cave was. But we have now two rel- two other relatives of Dan Richards who have agreed to take us to his secret cave. And wow. uh, uh, like I said, I'm a field person. I'm looking forward to actually uh, following through on this to see if we can find Richard's cave. 
and uh, maybe maybe there's something still left in there. We don't know, but that's always the hope. And uh, uh, we also are, are planning uh, something uh, over the years in investigating this case. Uh, we've come across a number of famous people who were touched by the, the case. Uh, that doesn't mean they were out there at the crash site, but that they, you know, a husband was involved or uh, a relative was involved, uh, something that they were somehow directly involved in the case in some manner, shape, or form. And we have a chapter in the book that's coming out next year called Touched by Roswell. And uh, some of the people, that just to name a few, is uh, Mickey Rooney, um, uh, Shirley MacLaine, uh, 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 Gordon McRae, a, a host of others that were touched by this case. And uh, uh, we're, we're actually thinking of maybe uh, doing a whole book on that. But wow. uh, we have a chat. We have a chapter in our uh, upcoming book for next year, case closed. Which, if we do another book, <laughs> it won't mean case closed. Right, but, right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a number of uh, people who were actually touched by Roswell uh, in some manner, shape, or form, you, you that you would you would recognize their names. So uh, that's exciting. <laughs> Well, you'll yeah. definitely have to keep us in the loop on that. And as you guys are making progress, I'd love to, uh, you know, have you guys come back on the show and and just connect with CK and I and make sure that we're, you know, keeping the audience up to speed on what you guys are working on and discovering out in the field. I think it's a really, really amazing approach to ufology in general, and and you guys got to keep fighting the good fight. Well, thank you, uh, thank you for those kind words, and keep. And uh, remember, we you know we have a book coming out again, another book, the picture book coming out. Uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, that uh, you know, it, it's it's our investigation in uh, in pictures with captions and with a narrative too. So uh, uh, you might look for that around Christmas time. Yeah, I think that our, our audience would really dig the hell out of that. That sounds like an awesome, awesome thing for for people to visually see what is being yeah. referenced specifically in our conversation as well. Yeah, so. it, it it should it it should be the companion to every book ever written about Roswell because it brings it brings the case to life it brings the case to life that's great well listen Tom I we really appreciate you carving out time for us today this was an amazing conversation we appreciate you doing the deep dive that you did um, you know like I said we'll have to link back up and make sure that we get uh, you and your partner in crime back on the show and uh, just keep <laughs> keep in the loop of all the things that you guys have going on but we really well, appreciate the time thank you so much Tom thank you thank you Thank you, Drew. It's been it's been my uh, pleasure. Very good. Bye now. All right. Well, hot damn. I uh, hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Tom is just one hell of a thoughtful researcher. Um, his partner in crime, Donald Schmidt, is also just one solid, solid dude. Uh, you can check out their work online. They have all their books available on Amazon as well. Tons of uh, video content throughout the web available for those two. So make sure that you guys check it out. Lots of good questions that they are asking. Would highly encourage everybody to just continue to explore all the things. I found it super fascinating uh, when we start veering into the the territory that is Wright-Patterson, Hangar 18, uh, the connections to Ohio, all the cover-up stuff. I mean, 
me. I always love myself a good conspiracy theory. So uh, definitely, definitely enjoyed that. And I'm looking forward to having Tom back on the show. Uh, but next time, would really like to try to get Donald on the horn as well and just kind of have a roundtable discussion about what they are continuing to dig into. Um, so next week's episode is one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. It's taken us a hot minute to uh, track this individual down. His travel schedule uh, is very, very, very hectic, and uh, he's not an easy guy to pin down. But next week, we are going to be welcoming Brian Forster onto the show for the first time in the history of Lost Origins. If you're not familiar with Brian's work, um, man, I don't know what the hell kind of rock you've been living under. But uh, Brian is an authority on megalithic works of South America, uh, but he's also best well known for his work around the perplexing ancient elongated headed people of the area. Um, more affectionately referred to as the Paracas Skulls. So this guy has basically written all the books. Um, I mean, legitimately, when we were combing through what we were going to be talking to uh, Brian about on the episode, uh, I counted more than 30 books currently in the wild. So, um, man, calm down a little bit. But he's recently completed a ton of research uh, around uh, Gobekli Tepe as well. So next week, when we get Brian on the horn, we're going to be talking about uh, the Paracas Skulls because, I mean, you can't talk to Brian Forrester and not include that as a talking point. Uh, his trip to Gobekli Tepe, what he was trying to find, locate, research, uh, and just kind of get his take on all the things that he encountered there. And then, most importantly, we're going to be ripping into Lost ancient technologies so it's going to be one hell of a conversation if you've not subscribed to the podcast just take a minute smash the hell out of that subscribe button for us written five-star reviews are always appreciated that shit helps us move the needle something fierce you can check out the website lost-origins.com uh, there's merchandise on the website there's tons of resources for you we have articles written by previous guests of the show uh, most of which are exclusive pieces of content uh, and, and and publishings that you cannot find anywhere else in the wild. So it's not stuff that's out in their books. It's not stuff that's available on their individual websites. Uh, it's content that is exclusively available at lost-origins.com. And if you love what we're doing, hop over to patreon.com forward slash lost origins. Throw us a bone, right? Uh, running a podcast is not an easy endeavor, nor is it uh, something that is cheap when it's done right. And so anything you guys are, are willing to peel off is it definitely means the world to us and every little bit helps. So Let's uh, circle back next Monday for our conversation with Brian Forrester. Until then, I'm Andrew, and we challenge you to question everything. <laughs>